This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Drew, thank you for staying uh, up late to do this with me. Um, I know that there's a healthy time difference between New York and Belfast. We're five hours apart. Um, anyone that's willing to stay up into the evening and lose an hour or two of sleep to deal with me, I consider a friend. So this is an, it's an honor for me that you're doing this. Uh, also, during the middle of this pandemic, um, I think a lot of people are probably less prone to, uh, to wasting time on a conversation online. They probably prefer doing other things. You're giving me your time. So that in itself, uh, for me, it's worth something. <laughs> Maybe you don't have better things to do. In that case, it's a win-win. Uh, the third thing I want to mention is that uh, I guess we met a decade ago uh, yeah. on the tour, on the Walk Beirut tour. And I don't know if we've seen each other since. Maybe we have, just in passing on the streets of Beirut. Maybe once or twice under the influence of a certain thing or I'm two. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't clearly remember those other times. I do remember, though, uh, that you and and also a common friend of ours, Eric Reedy, who was on the podcast recently, uh, I got to meet from the tour. So in a way, I owe it to that tour to have met many voices that I've been speaking to on the podcast. So it's nice for me to now gauge your mind on a subject. Uh, before getting into all that we're going to discuss, just want to ask your own sort of immediate life at the moment. Uh, what is it like being a pa- pa- remind me pen packed academic? Thank you. I'll, I'm going to actually insert this in the details box. A a pra- What is it like to be a pracademic? And I'll let you explain what that means in the middle of COVID nineteen. And uh, are you able to focus and get the work done that you want to, or is this kind of interfering with your day to day life? Um. Well, there's first of all. It's a real honor to be on the show, and it's hard to think about a decade gone because uh, there's significantly more gray hairs on my face. (laughs) I'm a lot more grizzled now, but I have to say, you know, the tour was a great experience, and I used to recommend it to anyone who who went to to Beirut. I was like, look, if you want to get a snapshot of this wonderfully perplexing, complex, infuriating place, go on the tour and then afterwards have a drink in Jamezi where we probably saw each other passing. That makes sense, yes. At some, at some <laughs> point. Um, as for me, at the moment I'm, a, I'm finishing up my fellowship at mm. uh, Queen's University. It actually was scheduled to finish this month. So this, um, this global pandemic has come at a time where I was just entering into unemployment. And then rather than try to deal with the professional existential fear of that, yes. um, I just decided that 
no matter what, whatever happens on the other side of it, is for now I'm going to open up my PhD and work on uh, turning it into a, a workable tra transcript or a workable manuscript, I should say. Transcript would be something else. Um, <clears throat> so this is something that I have committed myself to, mm -hmm. but yourself, and I'm sure that everyone else I've spoken to, when you think you would have more time, you actually have less time. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I have nephews and a niece that, you know, I help, you know, we're helping educate, and there's all types of other, like, um, responsibilities you didn't think you had. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, your uh, discipline to get up at six o'clock in, in the morning has completely evaporated because, oh, well, my office is only downstairs, so <laughs> right. I'm not going to and just, like, get up, shower, be super productive, get ready, and then go out. At least you have a downstairs commute. Mine is just around this wall, <laughs> so it's well, really... <laughs> I don't know. There's this truism when everyone back to school, it was like the person who was always late at school was the person who lived closest. You're right. So I'm, I'm consistently late to my own office, consistently late for my own hours, and then consistently don't hit the markers of books that I want to read, words that I want to write for this book. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> The other part of that is then I'm just like, okay, I have really hit like a bit of a, a form in the last few weeks where I'm like, no matter what, I'm ending my day, I'm closing my computer, mm. and I'm moving, I'm working out, or I'm going and doing something else. Um, I'm speaking with friends, I'm reading a book, just like rather than just say, I have all the time in the world to get all this work done, and then suddenly the, the day just bleeds into one another and it's gone. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean... It's in interesting. It's it's both. It's you have a lot of free time and you don't, and they yeah. kind of intersect. It's a strange feeling. Schrodinger's professional um, timekeeping is that you simultaneously have no time and you simultaneously have all the time in the world. You're right. Hey, can you just remind me though? I know we said this before we started recording. Pracademic. What does that mean? Well, um, I'm not quite sure. So, <laughs> Perfect. In case my bosses, my current bosses, at least for the next couple of weeks hear this, I am definitely an academic. Okay. Um, since I finished my PhD, or in actual fact, because um, we met during when I was in the middle of my PhD, I had always a mind to take my academic endeavors into the real world, whether it's for NGOs, mm -hmm. uh, governments, different type advocacy groups. I really wanted to take the rigorous research skills and methodologies that I would learn in the academy, turn it into actionable research. I see. So, so action is the key term, or that's the difference between staying, staying in the library and actually getting out. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Meeting people like you, engaging in um, wider public dissemination. Because for me, um, I feel that one thing that academia has a lot of downsides. Mm. Um, it also has a lot of positives. Um, working in the field has a lot of downsides. It also has a lot of positives. So basically what a pracademic tries to do is take that empirical rigor that you learn through your PhD, your engagement with conceptual engagement, learning of how to create things epistemologically. Thank yeah. God I said the word live on, on, the, on the broadcast. Um, <laughs> and apply it into actual real world policy or practice that can that can help an NGO working with refugees, for example, which is my main subject area, or conflict resolution, or um, ethnic conflict management, which are my broad sort of academic disciplines. Right. So it's really about melding, bringing that knowledge, and making it practically uh, applicable to. Research. 
and I apologize for the cliche term, but I guess it's also skin in the game that you're not just leaving your your academic research to the library, that it's not just students in the library reading, that you're actually engaging your your audience. And, and that I think, um, you know, I, I like that. I, I'm going to start using that term, even though I'm I wouldn't consider myself an academic, but I'm just going to start using it left and right until it really catches on. I like this term. Absolutely. Academic. Don't do a huge favor, because then we'd actually create um, a real <laughs> um, myself in this era of unemployment, but there's also you mentioned an important point is that I adore teaching in academia. There's nothing like engaging with students, and I feel that students really value um, that practical experience. Mm-hmm. When I was lecturing, uh, convening courses um, on Middle East politics, I also had a previous postdoc at Durham. Engaging students, giving lectures, and say, well, you know. I was in Zatari refugee camp in Jordan two weeks ago. People were like, oh, wow, really? It's like, and then let me tell you about the experiences and how this matches up with my practical applied research. I feel that students see a real value that they don't often get a lot of the times. And I don't blame um, academics or lecturers now because we have a system that's based on publish or perish, constantly yes. producing work. Right. They don't often get that time to practically engage or disseminate sometimes really impressive, well-researched, um, uh, conceptually uh, significant ideas to the real world. And unfortunately, that translation never happens. So essentially, if I had to distill it into a concept or an idea, my academic is that translation from the academy, from the library, into the real world, making sure it gets across. You are the Indiana Jones of conflict resolution. My hero, my, my the guy who I've modeled my entire life on right I mean, it, every every apart from of, what's that the imperialistic <laughs> stealing of, like key treasures from indigenous peoples across the world everything else yeah i hope you're not going back to beirut to steal things and bring them to the uk but i like that every it was most of those uh, movies that would begin with harrison ford in front of the students and then you know next second he's somewhere in the jungle so yeah you're the <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I'll take that all day I yeah don't it's have not bad <laughs> I'll, I'll go with the whip, but I, I think that you know, smuggling that into certain countries might not be allowed. But speaking of, you know, I could easily just go into like dig up someone's back garden in the middle of Lebanon and find some Roman artifact that they've tossed aside. There you go. Then, then it really that, that's when your career is not a packet. Sorry, pracademic. You're just the Hollywood star at that point. <laughs> You're like <laughs> where the cameras appear in the microphones and and the you know the 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 femme fatale with you as well. That's where the story really changes. <laughs> And there's a few of them in Lebanon as well. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but I, I like. So you're lecturing at Queen's University at the moment. So my my current position it has no teaching, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been research uh, where we look. We're actually comparing to the states that we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but also Macedonia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So four power sharing states: Northern Ireland, Lebanon, Bosnia, and uh, Excellent. Macedonia. And you know, we're looking at how those groups, those groups that are not considered in the initial power sharing arrangement, um, gain inclusion, um, have their voices heard, or sometimes aren't, don't have their voices heard, as the case as we know in Lebanon. Right. You know, I'm glad you mentioned these countries up front, and I'll just m- sort of add this that in uh, I think it was 2001, late 2001, I believe, I took a course at Queen's University on conflict resolution. Yeah. I spent 
a I think six six weeks. It was just a one of these standalone courses. The inter not the fall or the spring semester it was kind of like a winter course that they offered. Conflict resolution. The name of the uh, professor escapes me now. This is almost two decades ago, and he shared with us a lot of the Northern Ireland story that I knew, of course, I knew nothing about. And this just came back to me that Lebanon in those courses was considered a role model on how to do power sharing. And I always found that to be quite entertaining. And I, I this is a younger sort of more naive, just a student trying to learn. But I thought that was quite funny. It's like, are we really the model? I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> Us? Yeah, and I, I was cons- I didn't want to raise my hand and kind of interrupt somebody with that. You know, it's not my place to do that. But I just remember thinking, like, the standards must be really low <laughs> if that's the shining star. <laughs> right, and I don't want to get too much into it. And and certainly that humor speaks to a lot because I've helped organize um, young politicians from Lebanon come to Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and had like some of the key architects of the Northern Irish um, power sharing agreement, the Good Friday or Belfast agreement, specifically looked at Lebanon's constitution yes. at the National Pact and said, how can we work this out? But I, I have to give a caveat and an apology at the start because of my heritage of being both from Lebanon and from this island. I will say we in regards to both. Sure. So you, got, you have that. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> it might be confusing for the audience. And if it it's confusing for you to say which we are we talking about. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But on that point, um, I often, you know, I go to Lebanon and I say, you know, you got, you hear like quite a lot of cynical talk about the power sharing agreement and how it works. And I have, I'm writing a book on the critiques of it, so right, I have right. plenty of my own. Um, but the fact is, is I say, okay, let's take a, a snapshot and look at the regional environment that you're in, the neighbors that you've had, mm-hmm. their pathologies, their influence in the country, the, before that a mandate territory, before mm-hmm. that Ottoman territory, before that you know an Ottoman territory which had successive migrations of different groups coming to it. All things considered, Lebanon staying stable is a political miracle. Um, that, that's well said. Given, given the context, it has done, it has done it has stood on its own two feet as, as long as it could. That's that's right. well said, yes. I mean, it, of course, and, and I'm not like disregarding any of this incredibly problematic things that happened with the Zayim or with the, the economy currently, um, the capture of that economy or any of that stuff. However, you compare, I was like, in Northern Ireland, we need mediation from the US. We needed um, uh, the, the two kin states that um, the border and are the, the state itself in the UK and Ireland creating its own separate agreement mm-hmm. and it's still the conflict still not solved because the central question of whether Northern Ireland should remain a part of the UK or um, secede and become a part a unitary part of Ireland right. is still going on and in those days in the days of the troubles from that started in 1969 ended with the Good Friday Belfast agreement in 1998 for, and if you look at the academic literature on power sharing, many of the key scholars said, we really find it very difficult to imagine this is a, a conflict that can be solved. And yeah. while the Northern Ireland conflict has become kind of the exemplar ahead of Lebanon now, it's there's an industry here where there's a lot of the former politicians that go out to different countries and say, you know what you need? You need power sharing. Let me tell you how to do it. Um, Are they recruiting you for that? 
I have I have engaged in yeah, a little yeah. bit stories that I'll tell you about decommissioning in a bit but um, Northern Ireland became the, the exemplar but yet only recently our government was re- our devolved local government was restarted after mm. over a thousand days of holdout right. over a thousand we ha- now hold the record and we there's me switching to we in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland. Hold for longest like term without government so despite the fact that there is largely good mediation mm-hmm. um, you know, very positive and constructive mediation from our neighbors and international actors, which Lebanon doesn't get. We still held out for over a thousand days. So that just shows you just like the depth of division. Sure, yes. Problems and the fact that we haven't. I can swear on this podcast, right? Yeah, and if you want, actually, uh, uh, if you want to swear in different dialects and different languages, oh. please do. I mean, as much as you'd like. <laughs> that's fantastic that we haven't got our own shit worked out. Um, but I like that you're you're saying this up front. And that's actually it's 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 good to remember that even the cases that are looked at as as sort of potentially quote unquote solved conflicts and they're not necessarily solved that they have their own issues and they're they're persistent. And I think I like the way you're saying this that Lebanon is not it's it's not fair just to throw Lebanon as a basket case and say you know it's it's gone to hell and that's it. That there is some positive angles that should be emphasize and I like that you're saying that given the context Lebanon is doing okay or and maybe that word can be sort of we can argue exactly what okay means especially in what is happening now the last few months mm-hmm. that's a perfect introduction and just just before I want to I want to argue I'm not sorry not argue I want to I don't I don't know it's not fair to argue against you too at this moment but I what I remember is walking around Belfast and we had a we had a tour guide showing us things that for me were were insane these quote peace walls and i never imagined that in the uk sorry not uh, in northern ireland i'll correct that in in northern ireland uh, you would have that kind of physical barrier separating communities lebanon you can't even imagine that there are different types of divisions in lebanon some of them are more security and some of them are more you know, sub-state behavior like, but that's not a wall. That's not a barrier between communities. And I thought that was profound. And of course, going back to you too, that you could determine which side of the conflict you were on by which type of music you're playing from your pub. And I would just, you know, I'm like, this is still when you too was digestible. <laughs> but when you leave Belfast after a month, you're like, I never want to hear this band play. I just want to run away from this entire scene so much emphasis on on minute details mm-hmm. and bono's voice is one of those kinds of divisions i thought that was insane and uh and then of course the artistic expression is what i assumed was the closest that you see these beautiful murals beautiful graffiti it's real art and you're seeing that today in beirut as well shades of that and this kind of artistic expression and that always got me thinking that yeah these conflicts they're i mean they're all there are common threads, and then there are fundamental differences. And I like that you've kind of you've hinted at that, and said I think you said it well. There is a yeah. If you want to explore more, there is a, a friend of mine, Omar Masri, who just got his PhD, who does that art comparison and that mm. expression comparison between those two cities. He's been doing his PhD here in Belfast. Oh, excellent. And he's very full, full. But you mentioned the point, which is everyone has this real visceral reaction when they see the walls. Yes. And I'm and again. Speaking back to bringing uh, Lebanese politicians over, young Lebanese politicians and those engaged, 
They're like, I, this is just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And 80% of those walls were constructed after our peace agreement. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. The people. I was like, look, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. The walls exist as you exactly said. Are you telling me there's not a giant dividing line that right down the middle of Beirut, which we called the Green Line back in the day, that now doesn't actually you know, separate communities and separate ideas? The walls are mental, but in divided societies, these walls exist. Mm -hmm. It creates cantons of different communities, and they absolutely exist. And sort of my, my defense of Northern Ireland will come say, hold on a second, there is the, those walls exist. I we all know those conversations whether it's like someone in Juni or it's someone in Saida where they always talk like oh don't go to that side of town mm -hmm. or don't make travel up the road there because it's the person from the other community right. and northern we say themins or thoseins and there's one particular like anecdote that we say in northern ireland this often repeated joke and because it pretty much if you live in this or you've spent time in this community at one point this would have happened to you mm -hmm. where someone had stopped in the middle of the street and I'll make it Lebanese um, I'll make I'll, I'll actually give you an example of my own experience which was stop being stopped in the middle of the road um, on the way walking home from high school and I said are you a Catholic or a Protestant so which is a very dicey question depending on the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> said Greek Orthodox <laughs> Which is true, okay, it wasn't a lie, so I could sell it convincingly. And they had a huddle and they said, okay, well, are you a Catholic Greek Orthodox That's or a funny. Protestant That's Greek Orthodox? Funny. And this is a often repeated joke. Uh, I happen to say, well, you know, they fell out with the Catholic Church, but they believe in the Mother Mary. Yeah. Yes. So your pick. But yeah, <laughs> these divisions, we find them everywhere. They're a creation of the parallel society in which, um, you know, everything from speech, how you speak, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Obviously, language is a huge one. The, the the Irish Language Act was one of the reasons why we didn't have a government. Well, the the debates over why we didn't have a government for over a thousand days. Um, to those minute social interactions. Sure, and even I mean, it's it's I guess when you go there, it becomes cliche, but still, it's, to me, it's it's important. The difference between saying dairy or London dairy can mark you, and that I mm. mean, I you know. There's no sort of debate over how to say Trablos, Walla Junior, Walla Saida, Walla Sur. So, you know, and I like that you're able to offer nuance on both sides, on the Northern Ireland example and Lebanon. And based on your research, the Dayton Accords and the Balkans, the Bosnia yeah. and Macedonia. So for, for the sake of this episode, I'm going to try to narrow it down just to the Northern Ireland Lebanese story. Although all of the above are important. And actually even, I mean, Eta in uh, northern Spain is important too. And there are many different FARC in Colombia. But we'll sort of limit it to what's maybe most familiar. Uh, otherwise, we'll get our own podcast series and just call it uh, Conflict Resolution Forever. <laughs> so let's uh, maybe just a sort of a basic understanding of the geopolitical considerations that make mm. these two examples both p potentially similar and different. And let's start with Northern Ireland and just maybe the, if you will, the curiosity of external parties trying to get involved in an otherwise domestic dispute and whether or not there was real sort of appetite for that kind of engagement. And what I mean by that is, as far as I know, from my limited knowledge on the Northern Ireland story and the IRA, that the parties that got involved really just were limited, that this was primarily a, 
UK Ireland story that you don't have French curiosity, you don't have other countries trying to interfere. There's no there's no Netherlands sort of feeling how the dispute is emerging or for that matter American curiosity even though it was there it was it was limited as well. And then right. of course let's let's start there and then we can go to the Lebanese context. So um I'll speak back about 5 minutes ago when I mentioned about like the Lebanese consideration of how badly we're doing the regional environment um, Lebanon is a strategic hub. Um, you're in an area which has oil, in a region that has oil, that has major powers, has successive um, big powers involvement. Mm -hmm. That, and we can talk about like the the larger or the great powers involvement in Lebanon through sponsoring specific clients on the ground, which of course helped precipitate the initial first ethnic conflicts in Lebanon in the 1800s, 1840s, mm -hmm. In Northern Ireland, uh, in Ireland, um, Northern Ireland is a strategic backwater in comparison. Right. So our regional neighbors is the Atlantic and the Irish Sea yes. and the differences. <laughs> we have a kin border mm -hmm. whenever the creation of the border, uh, 1921, uh, between mm -hmm. Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. Of course, that we saw initial successive attempts by the IRA to not give up the fight. What precipitated, what the largest, um, a very large civil war um, precipitated in Ireland over the whether to acquiesce to the the terms of the agreement and separating the country and, and Southern Ireland being created or the Republic of Ireland being created. Mm -hmm. So there was this constant tension and feeling within the south of Ireland that there is still a part of the, the the country that was not yet reunited. Right. And I actually wouldn't undermine, I'm not saying you did, but you meant, you pointed out um, a fact that was very uh, important to the, um, the precipitation of the end of the conflict, which was American involvement. A huge amount of um, American involvement in in Northern Irish conflict mm -hmm. in terms of um, sponsoring in terms of money uh, money being sent to sponsor groups in Northern Ireland. This was an important factor mm. and also helped Clinton's involvement in the conflict. Right. wasn't something that he initially, having spoken to people who are part of that administration, that he was that overly sold on in terms of committing to a peace agreement in, in Northern Ireland. Right. But we saw and um, reminded in 1994 one of the, the one of the most important sort of political moves that helped lead to the end of the Northern Irish conflict was the U.S. granting a visa to Jerry Adams, leader of, of Sinn Féin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This was hugely rejected in the U.K. around the U.K. government because uh, at one point, Shin, members of Sinn Féin, there was a broadcast ban where they weren't allowed to have their voices on 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 news tele on BBC television right. is considered an illegal paramilitary terrorist group yes. and sponsored terrorist group and political um, support uh, the political voice of a terrorist group. So they literally stripped their own voices. And it was this common like growing up, you would watch the news, and if there was a member of Sinn Fein, they'd be blacked out, and someone dubbed yes. them over and right. say their words. So the U.S. giving um, essentially political cover or. Um, normalizing the uh, the IRA on Sinn Féin, a Republican pol political position, was a very, very important sort of effectively meddling, what we call, what we start off by saying meddling. So there was definitely an international involvement. Moreover, we also started mentioning off FARC and ETA. So the IRA was always very keen to internationalize its struggle. Right. So Barry Adams was a 
honored guest at Nelson Mandela's funeral. And, and sorry to interrupt. I just I just recalled this that Palestinian flags all over the place in Northern Ireland and graffiti, like you know, painted flags, not the actual flag, but murals of the flag. It was, it was crazy. Right. Yeah. Right. And we have this internet. We have this area um, in a very. Re- Republican nationalist Catholic area, the international wall still there, which still calls today the struggles, the international struggles of the Kurds in Turkey and of Palestine and of South Africa yes. and of the civil rights movement. And because whenever the trouble started in 1969, um, it started not initially with violence, but it started off with a labor movement and a civil rights movement here mm-hmm. as well. Um, by a man who would go on to win a Nobel Peace Prize for bringing. North for helping bring Northern Ireland to peace, John Hume. And in that, you know, there was a great correlation and parallel drawn to international conflicts. And this was an important part of the strategy of what was, of bringing to attention what was going on here in Northern Ireland for, uh, for that community. Right. And whether we can agree uh, or disagree, that internationalization being associated with international freedom fighters and people who struggle against apartheid helps create a legitimacy for your cause, which was certainly one of the most important aspects of um, the IRA campaign. That's interesting. So let's actually, that's a nice segue into the Lebanese context, because, you know, I I like that you said it's a strategic backwater for, in, in other words, that it literally is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a remote part of the island and it's hard to interfere in that sense, and I like that you you corrected the uh, the uh, the American sort of story. And absolutely, I mean the Good Friday Agreement and all that. There there is an American sort of uh, component to that story, and even in terms of the Kennedys used to sort of not openly endorse the IRA. That never happened, but there was sort of a uh, maybe a more a different approach, let's say than. Sorry, just a quick point. This has always been an irony within the the Irish American population are very fiercely conservative mm-hmm. in terms of their outlook, but supported the IRA, yes. which was as a very socialist outlook on it on its on its politics generally. Right. So there, you know, financial support coming from this Catholic led by Catholic conservatism and social conservatism to towards this economic and socially liberal organization in the north because it was an ethnic kinship and it was a, a national calling so right. it's always a, 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 you know an impressive irony for me to like uh, to draw these parallels as well absolutely but then you have that sort of dynamic in northern ireland throw it to lebanon uh, a substate group that has, for most, for to a large degree, now determines the security parameters of the way the Lebanese state behaves. Has wow. a sort of overwhelming influence on the foreign policy uh, matters of Lebanon. Uh, I, I would, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong here. That the and, and you said it at the beginning that it's a sort of a center of strategic concern for all the players you mentioned earlier, and particularly the Lebanese case is always mo- modern Lebanon is associated with geopolitical quagmire. So there's you can't really detach the two, but then you have a group that does not sort of have that international component. If if Hezbollah has friends, it doesn't really go. I mean, there's. It goes places, but it doesn't go the way you'd have the IRA kind of doing deliberate sort of uh, strategizing in that sense. That you don't find people really rallying around the Hezbollah cause. That that kind of doesn't. There's a disconnect there, and 
the the regional I mean, America sort of maybe pushes for getting the Good Friday Agreement signed and America's involved. You don't have that kind of determination to demilitarize or find find a way to disarm peacefully Hezbollah, that that's kind of off the table completely. Did I, did I get that right? I think you're 100% right. You hit on a number of really important distinctions. And this initially started um, by you asking me to compare and contrast the two. And I wanted to, to point that internationally, internationalized normalization of the IRA struggle more broadly um, is definitely a contrast with Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, whenever you look at the agreements, um, it's per- Hezbollah's arms as the resistance is made permissible in the Taif. So whereas in Northern Ireland's peace process, um, the decommissioning of arms is an integral part of was an integral part of the entire process. Right. It actually the lack of decommissioning on the initial time in the according to the initial timeline of the agreement was the reason why the government was first brought down in the first place. Why we had a while we had a suspension of our of our local devolved government. Mm-hmm. It ended the career of those initial unionist Protestant loyalist um, politicians that wanted to sign up to the agreement in the first place right so yeah no matter what our peace process had was inter intrinsically linked with the process of getting rid of arms whereas in lebanon's case we had an entire south of the country that was occupied currently by the neighbor state which was considered you know off limits and an enemy to all everyone who signed the Taliban agreement and that those right. actors who were operating against them were legitimized and that continuation and also this is another really important contrast point is that 2000 and israel retreats um that even if israel retreats we still live again this is me going to my lebanese we in an area and a region that is constantly that has regional rivalries playing out their positions most notably obviously in yemen and syria in the last in the last decade Mm -hmm. lebanon was the uh, the the quintessential example before that, mm-hmm. um, well, and so that so Hezbollah then can then reimagine its arms not only as a resistance to get against Israel, who helps fuel that p- particular rhetoric by its aggression in against Palestinians inside of Israeli-Palestine borders. So there is always a reason to be able to justify keeping hold of those weapons. And right. That intri- Interlinking or decoupling of the conflict with weapons was never a part of the uh, of the Lebanese of peace agreement. I, I'm going to try to unpack this as much as possible because I like that this is an important turning point in the Lebanese story. And 2000, May of 2000, the Israelis withdraw to the the UN Blue Line for the most part, and it's this, these minor disputes that remain are disputes that don't necessarily lend credence to keeping a sub-state group weaponized to the degree that Hezbollah is weaponized. And I I, I remember um, that was the raison d'etre of keeping Hezbollah's arms for at, at least until until 2008, mm-hmm. until the events of 2008 and where Hezbollah turned its arms inwards. Uh, but but let's, let's start with 2000. And I'm going to mm-hmm. try to keep this sort of as I'm going to try to portray the pic- the picture objectively and you tell me if I'm getting anything wrong because I'd like your sort of your feedback here that you have the Good Friday Agreement signed two years earlier 1998 if, I, if I'm not mistaken 1998 and you and you have 
and I like that you pointed this out, an inherent determination to to disarm all sub-state groups, period. That includes the IRA and, and whatever, that all are kind of on the table. The only kind of comparison in the Lebanese context, if one exists, is 1559, UN Security Council Resolution 1559. And then you have 1701, which follows the July 2006 war. And then you have that sort of, that attempt, the Ba'abda Declaration in Lebanon, in Ba'abda when Michel Sleiman is president. That's not really to disarm anyone, that's just trying to keep Hezbollah out of the, of the Syrian war. So right. these are flirtations with a, with a genuine attempt at disarming the last remaining militia following Lebanon's civil war. Right. It's this attempt, this Lebanese attempt at like to uh, decouple outside regional influence in. It's like maybe we should stop like um, trading on our patrons on their ups and downs in their regional conflict because it has a really bad impact on us. Yeah. Um, and you made a point, um, really, really, really important point there, um, which is the fact that which inter international actors and their declarations in terms of um, decommissioning weapons in Lebanon. There isn't, and then again, this is a contrast with the IRA, is that there's um, neutral mediators involved in the decommissioning. There is no way that if it came down to the UK saying, right, this is um, the Good Friday Agreement and we are going to be the arbiters of decommissioning the IRA weapons, they would not have handed over their weapons to the UK. Because right. this is still considered the occupying state. I, I mean, it wasn't until 2007 that all like uh, British army forces or operational army forces had left Northern Africa. Mm -hmm. So there's no way they would have said, yep, we're, we're decommissioning, that's fine. We'll hand it over to the state that we've been fighting, uh, you know, 800 plus years since their, uh, their first uh, implantation on this island. Not going to happen. What had to happen was that there had to be an international mediation and oversight through the decommission, or through the decommissioning uh, committee right. that had to ensure that it was a, a neutral arbiter that could hand over. What such actor exists in the Lebanese case? Right, exactly. There's, it seems I, empty. There's nothing there. Yeah. Effectively, I was thinking about this whenever um, doing my daily pandemic exercise. I was like, what? effectively, what I can draw a parallel to is that if Iran stepped in and asked Hezbollah to disarm, right. it would have to be a neutral kin, ethnic kin, or sectarian kin, or confessional kin, that would have to say, it is time for you to disarm our... So our sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Would that be... I know that, I know that the relationship is fundamentally different. But would that be like Dublin asking the IRA to sort of, that's it, it's over? Is that, does it line up that way? And effectively, in 1985, one of the, the earlier, earlier steps to peace was the Anglo-Irish Agreement, which was when the UK and Irish governments got onto the same page about how they would approach the security in Northern Ireland. That there would, they would try to like absolutely limit any kind of involvement in either government on either side mm -hmm. and try to rate and, and limit uh, the security outbreak there. So that was a step, and you're, you're right to draw that. So we'd have to see a joint Syrian um, 
Iranian document that sort of looked at his, that said, that told Hezbollah that it's time actually to really fully commit to the Lebanese political process without arms. Well, let's, okay, then that narrow, that window, the the, the lead up to the Good Friday Agreement and then it, it, the signing and all the reasons that it happened. Can you imagine that scenario lining up in the Lebanese context, given the fundamental different geopolitical factors? And that right. Lebanon is such a, I mean, the layers are so entrenched and it's just, it's so hard to imagine all of them kind of agreeing that we should just neutralize Lebanon and, and leave it alone. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any, I don't want to sound too romantic in that sense, but it, that seems to be the only way out in terms of turning Lebanon into a sovereign state. Right. I I would agree. I would also agree with your assessment that it seems particularly difficult, but considering that the path dependency of Lebanon's governance has sailed on the uh, the whims of its patrons. So this as the stock the internet or the regional uh, geopolitical stock exchange moves in favor of Iran, what yeah. do we see the empowerment of Iranian or like what we say uh, actors on the ground in Lebanon being empowered right. in the scene. I mean, this is, um, you know, international relations and ethnic politics and civil conflicts 101. This is not a great surprise to say that. How do we decouple that is the question. Obviously, the Baptist Declaration was atten- an attempt to do so. But while we still have, but in the immediate aftermath, the fact is, is that we went through a very long and bloody civil war. Um, and we, the- we is the Northern Ireland or Lebanon here? Essentially, uh, both. Both, I mean, both, no, right. We're still dealing with a lack of re- reconciliation from the conflict. Yes. And in Lebanon, we know that we're, you know, no victor, no vanquished. Okay, we're, we're still dealing with this issue, the mm. issues remnant mm. from the Civil War. Um, there hasn't been, like, a commitment to transitional justice elements that have, like, tried to draw communities together. And I think that that is something that Thaura really brought um, attention to. It was a genuine, like, oh, wow, we're all on the same page. All of our Zayim are shit. And we really have um, got to move on from it. I think that um, we haven't had that kind of like universal like coalescence or congruence of like of the different ethnic elites or, or sorry right. the different ethnic groups, and um, because 150,000 people killed because of population transfers because of displacement. These are very these are transgenerational traumas that take a long time, even under the best of circumstances, to get over. And Northern Ireland's a case study because we're not over it. We still yeah. have those. Wounds. We you know, still the, have yeah. just we have one point mm. uh, five billion euros worth of peace money to try and create reconciliation between the commun- only two communities not 18, uh, in, in Northern Ireland, and we're still nowhere close to it. And in yeah. Lebanon, we had anywhere near that commitment to reconciliation. So why yes. should they reconcile when we haven't reconciled emotionally and politically? Why should they decouple from those actors who give them, who might give them the, the leg up in the balance of power on the ground? And that's actually a very important factor that in Lebanon, you have communities that are trying desperately and they they pushed very hard at least six months ago seven months in october to reunite in a way that kind of uh takes everyone down including the last militia to remain following the civil war and sort of putting them and saying you're not you're not exempt you're part of the problem and that's that's a very important factor and then in northern ireland there's no soda per se there's no revolution you have a, the good friday agreement and then like you said then the walls go up. It's almost like, okay, we'll, we'll live together, but we just don't need to really live together. And it's almost right. like, 
it's almost like a separation going back to marriage versus divorce <laughs> and right. it seems like divorce seems to be the the functioning way at the moment in northern ireland but of course divorce with very very clear terms that it's almost uh you know we know exactly who gets what at the end of the day in, in lebanon there's no talk of that and there's no right. real you can't really separate so you're kind of forcing a marriage that hopefully will work one day <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this analogy, and I, let me let me try and like work with it with with you on it. Sure, but Drew, I'm going to ask you just one thing. Could, could you is there? Sure. Do you have a light in your room that you could turn on? Because you went, sure. you faded to black <laughs> at some point. Sorry. No, no, I was like, you're, this is amazing. Just sort of the the shadow. <laughs> no, you look great. Thanks. Didn't want to disappear into the dark. Yeah. Um, in speaking, so correct me, and then we can work with this analogy a little bit more. Mm. Is that speaking about Northern Ireland in terms of the divorce? And you mentioned we're still work. We worked out the terms. The terms were placed in in tithe, right? Or good Friday agreement. <laughs> yes. The the good tithe accord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's all mixing. Um, the terms were set, but as I mentioned earlier, we've had government suspensions because the divorce paper was set, but we're still working out who gets the cat. Or who has the right. who gets the house? Or how do we separate the inheritance? Or what do we do with the kids? Um, very very serious issues were left on the table that are still and haven't been worked out. L Irish language acts or language acts, a bill of rights, also really important. Yes. Um, the disappeared. So this is where I draw a lot of similarities between Lebanon. There's an issue over um, dis um, families who are looking for people who are disappeared during the troubles. Right. So we still like we're, there's that divorce process that's still working out um, within Northern Ireland. And then looking at Lebanon, and this is I'm going to quote Ayman Lahanda, which is in my PhD, which he said, the conflict, the pause button was hit. That's so that's Taif. That's 1989. That's yes, yeah. How is that if, uh, you know, we had um, elected politicians from 1972 go to a foreign state mediated by foreign actors, which is all fine. And I am not necessarily disagreeing with the fact that, you know, these things happen because this is often the way of very complex civil wars and how they are solved. Um, but you had actors whose relevance had been completely like uh, undermined by a new generation of Lebanese uh, political elite. Right. They weren't those those 1972 parliamentarians weren't the actors on the ground representing the community. So that's why we saw the Taif agreement being agreed. But did we see the immediate end of the Lebanese civil war? No, because the actors on the ground and the balance of the power, balance of power favored new, the newer actors who were in control. Of the community. In that sense. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Jumped in or the Gulf War started and then uh, Syria was given the blessing blessing to confirm its hegemony in Lebanon mm -hmm. that we saw in the war, hence the, the button was pushed. But does that come to just in, in terms of intention, that, that London wanted to see an end to the Northern Ireland issue, Dublin wanted to see an end to this issue, uh, and America seemed to be engaged perhaps reluctantly at the beginning, but eventually sort of uh, found a way in and, and pr participated heavily. In in, uh, in the Lebanese story, I mean, 1989, Taif is signed with the <laughs> the intention of the Syrian army leaving within a few years. Of course, it doesn't until 15 years later. And in, in Taif, and I think, I mean, it's it's pretty much said that Hezbollah is the exception, that every other militia or sub-state group or whatever, any other group that was involved in the civil war needs to disarm. 
and mm-hmm. will be disarmed. Of course, the caveat is that the last group that does not get disarmed seems to be toe-in-toe with the Syrian regime. And that's the... That, is that the... In other words, it's just the... The intentions of... So, sorry? The balance of power of the strongest on-the-ground actors. Right. That, In other words, the Lebanese civil war ends not the way the Northern Ireland Troubles era ends. That the Lebanese civil war, as as you hinted at earlier, this is just a... We're going to patch things up without any finding any solution per se. The caveat is that one group survives militarily, and that's mm-hmm. that's there's not that's really the core issue. That that's sort of that's what yeah. Several things I want to unpack here that are really important. Um, yeah, that is the balance of power on the ground, the logistic impact. <clears throat> the IRA had become deeply penetrated by the British um, intelligence services and their ability to carry out a campaign. Right. Jerry and other key Republican figures early on in the troubles had claimed that they were, you know, it's do or die, it's United Ireland or else, and we are settling in for a long war. Their ability to carry out that campaign was significantly reduced. In addition, right, right. In addition to the fact that um, the IRA's initial po- surge in popularity came after the good, sorry, Bloody Sunday in 1972. I don't know if you're familiar. You two have a song about it. I mean, it. Um, that's like, for better or worse, that's how I first heard of it. Yes. Yeah. So it was a very formative event in Northern Ireland's trouble, which actually people turned around and said, no, violence is a way, because look at what's happened. Right. The later commissions have said, you know, th- these were 13 people, like, innocently gunned down. This was a disgrace, and everyone felt it. So there was a surge in their popularity, but and we saw the the largest part of the, the Northern Irish in terms of deaths and in, in that uh, early period up until 1976. Mm-hmm. And then what you saw was a winding down or a tit for tat sectarian killing, which then became massively distasteful in Northern Ireland's uh, local local milieu. Right, so amongst right. The people, there was a there was a war fatigue that was setting in. So it was definitely you mentioned about the international mediation. I mentioned 1985 Anglo-Irish agreement, U.S. Uh, starting to penetrate into Northern Ireland. The, the logistics of the IRA unable to carry out the campaign to the same level, right. and also the significant efforts on the ground by different peace uh, conflict resolution people and peace movement people in Northern Ireland contributed to. A more not much more natural ending of the civil war in comparison to, you know, I don't have a a point to put to pick out your characterization of Lebanon's ending of its civil war that you had a hegemonic actor that saw a sub-state group as very useful and as soon as Syria and Hezbollah worked out their problems at the end of the Lebanese civil war it became a, a very symbiotic relationship. And you know, um, I, I remember this from my own my own experience. I was a teenager living at the. Lebanese embassy in Washington. My father at the time was the ambassador. And this is when the Israelis pulled out in May of 2000. And I recall this, the most uh, the, the most angered entity in that whole issue is the Syrian regime. That they were really upset that the Israelis were leaving. And that I think it's, it's uh, it almost, it just shows right, that, that that's it. That there's a country that is determined to keep Lebanon as a, as a battlefield. And and therefore you need to have a, a group with weapons that can do that, and that's so that, that there's nothing like that in the Northern Ireland story. There's no determined actor to keep the IRA active, at least in the military context. 
or the other paramilitary groups. Or, yeah, exactly. Right. I don't say that, you know, despite all that, you know, it's almost like, okay, well, there's a sunshine and rainbows. What has happened in, just say there was, and just to highlight how Northern Ireland hasn't got its shit sorted out, if there was a united Ireland uh, tomorrow, maybe, for example, um, an economic disaster hits, which unfortunately we're probably globally going to hit, um, that befalls Northern Ireland in the wake of Brexit, and it suddenly becomes much more um, an attractive proposition to reunite with Ireland, who remains a part of the EU. Mm-hmm. You will still, even in that event, you will still be left with a significant um, proportion of the population in the north of Ireland, of the then Ireland, who absolutely fundamentally cannot ever agree that they should belong, they, they remain British. Right. So then effectively you're replicating the same consequence or the same um, cauldron and the ingredients that led to the conflict in the first place. So we're always carefully trying to manage, and this is why we see those divisions these walls and those divisions, those cultural social divisions that you noticed, mm-hmm. is why these are constantly replicated because you have two dichotomous um, ethno-national identities that have to live in parallel. There right. is a third way that we can try and promote that actually you're not Irish, or you're Northern Irish, which means you're both British and Irish together, but it's a growing movement and that could be our version of Thaura. Right, our, right. That it, okay, that makes sense. You know, you. I mean, I'm just going to go back to one thing. You reminded me, and I should actually sit down and think this through. When I was in the when I was in Belfast uh, on the conflict resolution course, there was a car bombing in Belfast in, a, in front of a hotel, and I. I mean, that's all I remember. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's not a it's not a uh, vivid memory is because the locals treated it the way Lebanese treat it exactly. It's like oh no, no it's just it's down the street. Don't worry. It's almost like that's a different neighborhood, and I really. Beside it, and you'll be yeah, fine. You'll just don't make a left, don't go right. And I just, you know, I was like, oh, this, this is this is familiar. Yes. So that to me was the stark sort of. Ex- that's the example of common understanding. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's so many of them. And just um, just on, on a quick point is that you mentioned about like the saddest people in the room being the Syrians about the Israelis leaving. Yes. Um, yeah. That if you look at like Hezbollah and you look at compare its pathology with the IRA, I mean, or it's its progenitor in in the early 80s after the Islamic Revolution in Iran, right? Attacking the U.S. first or attacking the Marine base, right? right? Yes. Yes. Assassination of Malcolm Kerr or any of these other instances, right? It's fundamentally always been in in part of its rhetoric anti-imperial. And that doesn't need to be a specific actor. It doesn't need to be specifically Israel. A resistance can, in their mind, in their rhetoric, can continue on against anyone, can continue on against like someone who is going to impinge on the sovereignty of Lebanon, and we are the vanguards against that, regardless of whether it's Israel and South Lebanon, or it is Saudi, or it's, uh, you know, people who want to, like, the Free Syrian Army or someone else. You can always repackage this mm-hmm. rhetoric. That's actually, yeah. Let's get actually let's get into the lexicon, and I like that you you pointed at the the if you if you will the evolution of the IRA, and that's not necessarily good for the IRA. That it kind of, as you said, gets penetrated by British intelligence. It becomes an unpopular method of reunification right. with with uh, Ireland, and it becomes in a way very difficult for them to act. Uh, using weapons, right? And that I just want to ask one quick question: Are they not in? Forget the UK. Let's say the rest of Ireland. Are they considered 
terrorists by the locals. Is that right. word used in Dublin as the, this is a terrorist group? Unfortunately, Dublin's a world apart from from Northern Ireland. Um, it's it's really different. It would be very difficult for me to say what, what the common sort of mm. understanding of the street is about that specific question. But you certainly would have like like in and and there's a joke in the north that you know it's like people in the south they have actually no care about what happened, very little care yeah. in the deep south. Now, if you're on the border, if you're in the border territories, you are deeply affected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like where you name Dublin, which is very south, very yes. south, yeah. not most south, but definitely south enough. It was like the idea of Northern Ireland would be like, oh, this is those people kicking off again. Can they just like give yeah. over? And, st- um, and it, so this is why in the Good Friday Agreement, um, reunification with Ireland has to happen in a double, it's a double lock system mm. where there has to be a referendum of the majority in the north and in the south that accepts it. Right. Um, so we have these implicit, we have these explicit arrangements in our peace agreement to try and like work out the social um, mood towards uh, reunification of the north, or, or or whether or not that's even a viable structure. Because there's a very big economic question about whether or not they would want us, because we might be an economic drain, possible probable economic drain, right. and the UK has long since had a a feeling of like Northern Ireland headache. Yeah. It's been issue that they have wanted finished or not to ha- not to constantly have to come in and mediate and deal with mm-hmm. and subsidize so I mean I think that's a, those are very in- interesting and important sort of intersections that overlap but I, I will say that just as an important point is that the the national or the like cohorts or Republican national community so if you look at other parties like uh, the SDLP in the north which was a it's a Obstensively, its goal is to reunify mm-hmm. with, um, mm-hmm. with, the with the yeah. absolutely abhorred the idea of, of of violence and decommissioning was just as important to them as it was to other groups. But I'm just curious, like, I mean, because for me, and I say this as somebody not involved whatsoever in that issue, I do associate the terms IRA and terrorism. And this is somebody mm-hmm. have, having just watch the news it's not a very it's not a nuanced explanation it's just those two words seem to link up whenever you read about that story even if uh even that's even that and that can be debated but that's sort of the terminology is used uh, frequently right but is that a in your opinion is that something that's shared among reunification supporters that they looked at at the ira as yes a terrorist group and that that is terrorism Absolutely, you would like look at within like members of the Catholic community who absolutely abhorred like the methods of the IRA and would have okay. called it a hundred percent. Okay, a hundred percent. We don't want to obviously we don't want to ever treat like the Shia. The no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, sure, as sure. Because there is a diverse variety of opinion, but like for sure there is such um such a uh, there has and and continues to be even historically now such. Um, antipathy towards like the the methodology that the IRA used within CAF, even amongst like their cohorts who who want to reunify um, right. with uh, with the Republic of Ireland. Yes, that exists one hundred percent. The reason I'm actually I'm curious about this is that the term in Lebanon and you mentioned it earlier, resistance. Uh, mm-hmm. That that word has a an evolving meaning that has two things happen. It expands and it also sort of gets sort of narrower over time and that many people that thought of Hezbollah as a quote resistance group 
maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, look at them now as a terrorist group. And right. that, the, I mean, I think even the term militia is kind of lobbed into that as well. Mm-hmm. But the term resistance gets sort of more, there's a more, it's almost like a, uh, there's a pass given to Hezbollah, that their weapons seem to be not the same as other sub-state groups fighting different causes. That the FARC, ETA, IRA, or any any group, and we can, I mean, the Balkans is another example, the the Bosnian Serb paramilitary, the, what's his name, uh, Kradic and uh, Mladic and these characters. I mean, Hezbollah, that, that word gives them a pass beyond Taif, that it's a word that's embraced among yeah. large swaths of not just Lebanese, but, you know, Syrians and Iraqis, maybe even Iran, it, it gets complicated too. But is that lex- is the lexicon part of the story that Hezbollah? Huh? Can, yeah. Okay. Can you can you maybe just get into that a bit and why why is that why does that kind of perhaps prevent a willingness to disarm that group? So to add more um, more flavor to to the characterization you had there was that. How many, if you had have pulled the Lebanese after May 2008, how, what would be in the favor towards uh, Hezbollah's arms at that point? Right, exactly. It would have been yeah. pull it and pull it in um, 2015, whenever you had the emergence of Daesh. And then Hezbollah's sort of mm-hmm. rhetoric yeah. was to say that we're actually a vanguard against these, uh, these animals and these, you know, devils who are like in a neighboring state and could come over here um you know i've heard many of different um confessional backgrounds people like express an admiration for hezbollah's like military engagement in syria mm-hmm. in 2000 who were saying the complete opposite whenever they started when it was the big secret when they started in uh, 2011 right right I mean, we see that importance, and that is why I mentioned at the start about a legitimization of your cause. Mm. Um, for example, another important point is that I mentioned again the the blackout or the voice blackout of Sinn Féin members yes. um, in the Troubles. As soon as it became public that the British were negotiating with the IRA and with Sinn Féin for decommissioning, they stopped being called a terrorist organization on BBC mm. and started being paramilitary organization so there's also a battle now i don't want to get into like too postmodern <laughs> and say that you know let's i don't i don't have my derrida manual with me but uh, yeah <laughs> yeah exactly. pracademia um, a la foucault <laughs> yeah i was about to say yeah. <laughs> um but they do have a they do have an important uh, political impact is that the fact that thatcher and the government the conservative government at the time said we don't negotiate with terrorists that's why it led to quite a large pr disaster with the hunger strikes and that only gave them further legitimacy so then it became politically expedient to then start negotiation and you can't then go back on your word and say, oh, we're negotiating with terrorists? Well, no, we're negotiating with a paramilitary group that has obtained international legitimization in the eyes of many. Now, of course, the you know methodology and, and use of violence and use of force is being widely debated, but we can start to say that um, those persons holding in a political opinion of Northern Ireland should unite with the Republic have a legitimate grievance that is mm-hmm. rooted history. So there was that um, connection to a tangible, real political outcome. Whereas, if, as I said, the point I made about if you start, if you poll Lebanon's 
uh, or Lebanese or different Lebanese response to the resistance, it's going to see, in my opinion, it's going to see a great deal of variance depending on what those weapons have just been used for. Have they been used in downtown Beirut against other Lebanese? Mm-hmm. Have they been used in Syria against people fighting against the regime? And that's going to matter greatly. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, the IRA, the lexicon wasn't so controversial. It was controversial to a point, but it was managed. In Lebanon, it's something that's not really digestible, that this word is too loose in a sense, that you can you can never get to the issue that this is an armed militia, <laughs> or that you can't say it that way. Yeah. Who are you resisting against? Current right. Name factors. Why are you resisting against? Or why do you require drones? Why do you constantly, why do you require proliferation of arms? What is the resistance for? And that's why, you know, I'm like, if we're looking at it from political discourse or rhetoric, it's 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 genius. You can you can replicate your 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 calls over and over again. And something I think, I mean, it's it's mentioned, but it should be mentioned more that even that term is predates Hezbollah. So it's almost like they co-opted the term to make them an exclusive militia. I mean, we have older quote resistance yeah. groups fighting in Lebanon in Lebanese history. These are tend to be left-wing sort of uh, paramilitary groups at the beginning of the civil war but hezbollah becomes the monopoly that they yeah. that the term is theirs to use as they see fit they've 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 tm'd a resistance so they that's actually you're right but is there in, in your experience and maybe for we can wrap it up with just getting out of northern ireland and lebanon is there any example where the situation like we see today in Lebanon works where you have a sub-state group with that much leverage, that much authority, able to uh, spare regimes from falling ne- next door, able to fight on the side of other paramilitary groups in Iraq, able to, in a way, survive beyond the Ta'if Accord, beyond 2006, beyond 2008, beyond Ba'abda, where in 2020, mass uprising they're part of the story and they're still there they're still intact is there any example where this kind of dance works because in my mind i can't i mean i like i'm just going to go back to what you said at the beginning yeah it is a miracle that lebanon survived (laughs) it is a miracle yeah well i think that um we also can't like we've talked a lot about the weapons side of hezbollah but Obviously, the growth of it as a political organization, and this is where there's a tremendous parallel with the IRA and Sinn Féin. Right, right. Effect, like as an effective political organization, you know, incredibly effective, mm-hmm. incredible mobilization, incredibly incredible party discipline, incredible like sort of levels of organization across the board, and especially in comparison to its cohorts within the Lebanese um, scene. They are like by far and away the most effective political actor, mm-hmm. for better or worse. And we can say that undoubtedly, the the presence, the iceberg presence of arms underneath it is a contributing factor. Of course, it is. Yeah. No one's going to say otherwise. But uh, that aside, it is a very, very, very well run, effective organization, political organization, and that you know that's a part of its success overall, um, or its. Um, its resilience or its ability to replicate in in Lebanon and right. to stay relevant. Um, and then go, going back to what you said at the start, the miracle of Lebanon, um, it's very normative to sort of say what works or what doesn't. I can certainly point to um, other power sharing um, 
um, arrangements, for example, in Burundi that are upheld by like paramilitary style um, organizations of the youth movement who are intimidating um, local inhabitants to vote for the a particular for the, the for the major party. There are certain groups that have like that element of armed um, that armed wing that can promote them. Does it work normatively? Mm, Does it go mm. well for the future governance of the country? We can say probably no. Mm. Um, does it stumble along, you know, being able to engage? And well, the wonderful thing about Lebanon is that, you know, um, they always find a com- we always find a compromise for everything. It's like, okay, right, so there's a compromising nature to the ability. Okay, right, okay, your resistance, fair enough, just don't use it internally. Okay, you used it internally that once, okay. Okay, well, maybe more. Okay, well, uh, let's just, like, continue. You know, I'm going to interrupt you here because I remember once interacting with an academic, not a practice not a pracademic, an academic, and he was giving me the the full title, uh, consociational confessional construct, or there was some very elaborate term to explain the Lebanese state. I just said compromise, at okay. times with a caveat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, so yeah, you know, my job, my is consociation is the, the consociation. Thank you. That's what it is. Yes, consociation. Oh. I'm interviewing um, people during my PhD. They were go, what we just call it confessionalism or like yeah. the system. Um, <laughs> for uh, in Northern Ireland, they call it power sharing in our accent. So, <laughs> right. it, essentially, in its original conception, academically, it was a system that was about elites compromising yes. and making deals. And what we have is certainly an elite group that has a balance, has the balance of power for the reasons that we have outlined in this wonderful chat. Um, And that doesn't make, so even in the original conception of power sharing, you have one particular political actor that always holds a trump card over everyone else. I don't mean to say that as a pun for Uh Donald Trump. No, but uh, I I asked, the other comparisons, and you're right to point out that this is all normative, but just states that have prospered with that kind of entity that's active. To me, the FARC example in Colombia seems to be the, it's not it's not directly the same, different issues altogether, but there mm-hmm. is a very large sub-state group with arms that the mm-hmm. state bends towards. Mm-hmm. At times fought, the Lebanese example that does not exist, but at times fought. And even in Colombia, they seem to be finding a way to kind of disarm over time that group. So even in Colombia, you have that inevitable conclusion that you can a monopoly of 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 the monopoly of violence seems to be standard across the board. Burundi, I don't know that example. I'm glad you pointed it out. Is it is it akin to the Hezbollah's weight in Lebanon? Is that that kind of? I mean, there in Burundi, you certainly have like um, a monopoly of violence that is headed in the current major political party, and mm-hmm. that's a worry for everyone. That, but. I mean, I, again, I go back to does it work? Probably not in the way that academics or academics or practitioners or or people who believe in democracy want it to work. Um, I definitely think that the Colombia example is a good, really good, probably a better example than the British one, but um, about a slow disarmament or also reintegration into state structures. What we right. see, yeah. DDR um, campaigns is that idea 
of demilitarizing and demobilizing those and bringing them into the state structure or integrating them into state structures. Um, and of course, the, rather than doing that, the fact is, is Lebanon is effectively doesn't just work in one sub-state actor. Everyone holds their monopolies. They don't hold the monopoly as effectively as Hezbollah, but they have their areas, their territorial areas of influence, and they 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 administer their to their their uh, clients. Uh, they administer to their particular groups in their areas, and they work as many states because the state of Lebanon has been so patently stripped of all Absolutely. of its relevance. Right. So of the and we saw that in in the fifties, Fouad Shahab, whenever he tried to create effectively a state in Lebanon, which is, okay, education system, um, social, uh, sorry, the entities, you know, your um, pension, all these different sort of ideas of what social welfare and state means. And we saw, and who was the biggest pushback against that was the Zion, because we were started to undermine sure. their, their sub-state influence. And right. whenever you work on an overall system that, um, and again, tying it into recent events in Lebanon that really um, put the emphasis on those poli- certain political actors and empowers them. You're a, an, an organization like Hezbollah that does it very effectively and, and is working within the rules of the Lebanese game. It's as quintessentially working as a Lebanese organization under those rules, and it's profiting more because it's better funded, it's well organized, it's well armed, and it's um, well, you know, it's well organized. And it is hell bent on preserving the post Ta'if order, that even mm-hmm. when you have people on the streets trying to get rid of what you mentioned earlier, this layers and layers of whatever the words are, crony capitalism, nepotism, mismanagement, mm-hmm. thuggery, what? all mm-hmm. of the above, uh, the the old, unfortunate uh, power sharing ways that we got used to in Lebanon, that they are able to, at least for the moment, push a bit against that but Hezbollah even when they push against that group's corruption but let alone its weapons it doesn't seem to be something that you can have changing with domestic considerations that there has to be a geopolitical calculation and I guess that goes back to just the Northern Ireland story evolved to a point where there was enough international attention to end that conflict and in in a way that's enough for northern ireland is really just the americans kind of just going in and saying we're going to help end this now in the lebanese context it's just it just doesn't happen it's not there and and just as as a quick point is that yeah you're right um that there is an effective like mediation requires an impartial actor Mm. but early on like we had the um it's the PUL, the Protestant Loyalist uh, Unionist community, reject American influence because they perceive the Americans as being biased towards the Catholics. Because right. you have a population, you're trying to, Clinton's going for re-election. This is a game that we've seen before. We know what you're doing. You gave Jerry Adams a visa. Right. So there's always that element in, in, in solving these local domestic disputes. But what we can sure as hell say is that the, those, you know, that Iran is, you know, no one's going to dispute Iran and Syria have a vested interest in maintaining Hezbollah. Yes. Not going to like similarly that other regional actors don't have a vested interest in maintaining their clients in Lebanon Mm. and unable to decouple that. um, And which means that they continue 
um, replicating their power on the ground in Lebanon as many sub-state actors acting as as the state as the person who gets your kid into who goes to the decane and gets your degree or gets your driving license and gets everything yes. um, we can't decouple like the political economy and capture of the state from these uh, these sub-state actors so really and I'm just we can sort of end it and you'll tell me if I got this right or wrong this is the most important point in the whole conversation 1979 Bono says Sunday bloody Sunday internationalizes yeah. that that <laughs> conflict uh 20 some years later 30 years later there's this unknown song in one of the backtracks of an album that no one listened to called cedars of lebanon and it kind of yeah. just went <laughs> under the radar no one cared <laughs> I, I thought we were going in a place that we were going to like accept bono's like relevance as someone who ended the northern iron conflict and that's something that we can't accept because bono as great as a band as you two are or were um <laughs> I like that. We don't even know at this point, are or were. Well, you say, you say there's a joke here um, that says, what's the difference between uh, Bono and God? God doesn't go around thinking he's Bono. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so what Lebanon needed was a really good like, song. Okay, I, I can get behind that. I mean, we're not short of talent. Get Beirut to... You know, to sing something and and then we're we're good. I will end on like uh, one point. I did promise you a story, and I can't name a name, but let's just say like a particular very prominent hereditary mountain leader. Okay, that's a- that's not obvious at all. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> um, and I had this story firsthand from people who were beside said leader at the time, who um, and just to scale the difference between uh, the two places. Um, he met with um, various people who were part of the decommissioning, mm. um, and then he asked the very pertinent question: "Is like, um, well, how much did you decommission?" And then you know they named okay, like a thousand uh, rifles, uh, blah blah blah, sem- two tons of Semtex. Um, what they found some uh, some parts of the decommissioning were like World War Two guns and like mm. really some mm. old stuff. Yeah. So this particular mountain leader, hereditary mountain leader who remains nameless, said, yeah, whenever I decommissioned, I got rid of a tank division, 50 caliber heavy artillery, <laughs> several units of, of um, X amount of like explosive teams. And everyone's like, oh, okay. We realize this scale is completely different. But while the scale may be different, a lot of the, the conceptual similarities are remained and I think that we did a good job in drawing them together. But you're ending on a very important point which is a mount a unnamed mountain leader hereditary etc etc is disarmed and geopolitics is part of that story that he's disarmed maybe not he doesn't want to be disarmed but he's disarmed and 1990s he's not known as a militia man he's known as just exactly what you said an old hereditary mountain leader maybe not the shiniest, maybe not the most uh, well-intentioned, who knows, but that he's just one of the crowd now. He's not special. That's the, and that's, I think, an important note that he can be disarmed. One group cannot. And that seems to be the inevitable conclusion that uh, there is sort yeah. of an anomaly at the Lebanese story. Otherwise, the civil war should have ended without just being a pause, per se. Um- I agree. I agree. And I think it's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up. And it comes back to that balance of power. While there are still yeah. states region that support, I mean, that particular group, very small ethnic group, 
has precarious position in the in the country in the region generally and doesn't have the uh, compliance or patron of several like powers in right. the area exactly so this is an uh, this is the key dilemma you were very kind with your time drew we've done we've, we've said almost everything i'm sure we there's <laughs> other things we could have squeezed in but we had i think we have a we have a solid conversation, and the next time we speak, it'll either be a sequel to this conversation, or, if you don't mind me sharing it, when your book is out, because the book kind of touches on this subject too. It's not only on Lebanon and, and Northern Ireland, of course, but the wider conflict resolution story that you're part of, and uh, I hope we get to meet in person soon enough. Um, yes. I, I spent four years in the UK, and I lived in Edinburgh for four years, and uh, I think oh. I... Okay, you're best, literally the best place to live in the UK. I, that's what everyone in the UK says, and then most people I meet in the UK have never been. <laughs> like, oh, it's lovely up there. Have you been? No, no, never went. Yeah. I mean, uh, a heavy for the winter, especially if you're Lebanese. But at the same yeah, time, yeah, exactly. But I wish I had it here. I usually have this Edinburgh. Oh, here it is. I have my little coffee coaster of Edinburgh with me. There's some Edinburgh pictures on the wall. I'll just end it with saying something I thought was perfect, and it's not Northern Ireland, of course. It's Scotland. Uh, I was there, I arrived, I think, the week of the referendum. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, it's, it's a very close vote. Inevitably, Scotland stays in the UK. And I was walking in Newtown, just trying to get to Old Town. There's no yeah. Hamra Ashrafi, there's Newtown, Old Town. It's, it's a lot easier. <laughs> this is the new part. On the street. Yeah, and the new town is actually quite old, and old is really old, right? And... BBC, sort of a team of journalists and microphone and camera, they kind of come up towards me, and they're like, you know, what do you, uh, what do you think about the referendum? I'm very, it's an underwhelming moment. Underwhelming moment is very calm, very peaceful, and very quiet. <laughs> so did they ask you because they felt that you looked like Scottish with you know? They assumed, yeah. Hair. And I, and to be yeah. fair, that's it's the only place on planet Earth I've ever <laughs> been where I felt at home. I'm like, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have some genes from, from Scotland. Yeah. But I, I told them, and I think they, the reason they kept talking to me is because what I was saying, I think they didn't expect. It's like, you know, I just flew from, from Lebanon. And, I mean, this is not a referendum. Where's the, where's the gunshots? Where are the fireworks? Where's the, where are the armed groups you need? <laughs> if the vote didn't work, we make it work. And she's like, she's like talking. Yeah. She's like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "No, no, no. This is uh, this is too peaceful. It's too peaceful. Try again." what is really going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and there, you know, it, it it shows just how. I mean, yeah. There are certain conflicts that are that are there. They're they're visible still. And you mentioned it at the beginning. There are some that conflict resolution doesn't mean hundred percent in any context. But definitely, there are different ways of handling uh, problems, and it seems that, you know, the UK seems to be a shining star in that sense. Right. It, it was, yeah, for sure. And then, you know, Brexit has reopened. Sure. Like, for example, the UK that yeah. the the agreement between the union itself between Scotland and yeah. England, three over three hundred year old document of, you know, a pretty good example of re resolving conflict, then flung open off the back of a wave of populism right of sure, right populism sure. and rejecting globalization and we saw how quickly that like i mean when i was a kid the idea of scottish like independence and nationalism was a, like it was 
silly because it was like, well, why would you want it? This is the best of all worlds. We get the economic benefits, the freedom of movement benefits. No one is denying your Scottish... And, and the autonomy. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, your own government, like the devolved government. So then bringing this idea back, you know, this is a part of an overall like regional geopolitical balance uh, yeah. of a growth of a particular uh, populist movement that we've seen globally. Right. So yeah, right. and we can see how quickly that can torpedo the, the what was once a solid idea of a Scottish remaining a part of the union, which is now constantly it's open question. Work. You're right, absolutely. On that note, thank you, Drew. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>